Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Bruce. You know, they always say that the more important the person, the shorter the introduction. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. So thank you, Bruce, for that lengthy introduction. Um, uh, Two men sat alone at a bar in downtown Detroit, and uh, one of them turned to the other one and said, uh, well, where are you from? The guy said, well, man, I grew up right here in Detroit. And he said, well, man, me too. He said, well, where'd you, uh, where'd you go to high school? He said, I went to Washington High School. He said, well, man, that's amazing. I, I went to Washington High School. He said, well, what you know, year did you graduate? I graduated in 1994. He said, you gotta be kidding me. I, I graduated in 1994 from Washington High School here in Detroit. Where, where'd you live in the city? He said, well, man, I lived over off of, uh, of Luther Avenue. He said, I lived at Luther Avenue. He said, what, what house did you live at at Luther Avenue? He said, I lived at 1412 Luther Avenue. He said, I lived at 1412 Luther Avenue. Just at that moment, the phone in the bar rang and the bartender answered and it was his wife. And he said, yeah, it's really slow. Nobody's here. Only people here are the Johnson twins and they're drunk again. Uh, so I share that because you don't have to be drunk to know that uh, you and I have a lot in common. Um, we both call this wonderful institution um, our home and our place of training. We love this place. But I know uh, from my experience here, I spent about seven years here, that seminary can be one of the toughest times of your life. Uh, at least it was for me. It seems like seminary is a place where as much as any other, you can get confused about what God is doing um, in certain areas of your life or not doing, maybe that's a better way to say it, things you thought he was going to do in your life that he's not doing. God, you called me. God, I said, yes, why aren't things happening differently? Um, It was that way for me. It seemed like a lot of my friends when I was in seminary were getting these great ministry positions. And uh, I was working in the the back room of a kitchen of a local restaurant making Bloomin' Onions. Uh, I had a second job making, uh, working construction for $7 an hour. Uh, Bruce and I went out and got business cards made that said motivational speakers so that we could go into high schools, we thought, and have engaging conversation. And nobody was really buying what we were selling. Um, so it was, it was a depressing time. Maybe it's per- personal difficulties that you've begun to go through since you got here to seminary. One of our church members felt called to go overseas to live in a Muslim unreached people group. Um, Now, anybody that does that, it's a sacrifice, but for this guy, I mean, he was in many ways living the American dream. He had a a high-paying executive job in corporate America. He was in his mid-40s, and he resigned that job, burned the ship, so to speak. After he does that, a few weeks after that, his son develops a medical condition. He wrote in his journal, shared it with me. He said, wait, Lord, this isn't what is supposed to happen. We submitted to your will for our lives. We just sold about everything we have. We are disassembling the American dream. We spent 20 years building, leaving everything and everyone familiar, and we're moving our family from the medical capital of the Southeast to a place with little to no health care and one that's hostile to the gospel so that we can be your witnesses. And then you do this. Nick Ripkin, who will speak here next week, I understand, went through the exact same thing. He wrote a book about it called The Insanity of God which I think is popular, if for no other reason than the title. 
Because I think we all feel that way. We, at some point in our life, we ask God, I just don't understand what you're doing. I thought it was going to be different. I want to show you that the Apostle Paul asked many of those exact same questions. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16, I'm going to have you turn to Acts 9 if you want to get your Bible out. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.16 that his conversion and calling were in many ways a pattern for all of us. Which means that there are things, Paul tells us, about his story that should help you make sense of yours. You probably didn't have the knocked off a horse and saw a blinding light, but that's not the part that's supposed to be true in your story. There are patterns that he went through that he said were to be an example for everybody. Acts chapter nine, we're gonna be around verse 15 is where we'll begin. Context is Paul had just been converted. And so God wants one of the early church leaders, Ananias, to go baptize him. Ananias, understandably, is timid to do so because up until this point, Paul has been public enemy number one of the Christian faith. But in verse 15, God says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, those two things that I have highlighted there, they don't seem to really go together, do they? Chosen to suffer? Suffering is what the enemy causes, isn't it? Or isn't it what happens when you don't do things right and you suffer the consequences? In the next 10 verses, you'll see that Paul suffers from the very beginning, all kinds of opposition and hardship. Here are the three points I'm going to try to make out of this passage today. Um, First one is Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. Second one is Paul was chosen, yet God took many years to prepare him. Third one is Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. This in many ways is a pattern for you. My goal today is I want to give some of you hope regarding what God is doing in your life. You see, hope can be one of the most powerful, sustaining forces on the planet. There's a legendary experiment conducted at Johns Hopkins University in which a researcher was trying to determine how long a rat could swim. If you just threw a rat into a bathtub, he he figured out that the rat would only last about 10 minutes before the rat drowned. He said, but if you took out the rat two to three times in the first 10 minutes, and put them back in, the rats could swim for more than 60 hours. Changing no factor except the introduction of hope gave the rats the ability to swim more than 100 times longer than they could swim without it. So my purpose is to give God's seminary rats hope this weekend so that your classes don't drown you. To see that in opposition, in delay, in hardship, even in boredom in your life, God has a plan. Let's just read the passage first. Verse 19 picks up right after Paul is baptized. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here now for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed... Verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down to the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Number one, Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. Sometimes this is your biggest surprise. People that you expect to recognize what God is doing in your life often do not. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it is your parents. 
Maybe it was your siblings. Maybe it was your church. Maybe it was your friends. Maybe it was your spouse. I certainly experienced this. God started to do a lot of things in my life and uh, Bruce's life when we were in college, and we started to share it. And there was some people that listened, but a lot of people didn't. We, he and I together started a Bible study on campus that grew. We were reaching people. We started to get all this criticism that I don't think either of us were really prepared for. We got labeled a cult in the school newspaper. That We got both called into the administration offices several times. We were asked to never teach the Bible on the campus of the university we attended ever again. I know of a college student in our church who after he got saved, he went back to all the guys in his fraternity. And he's like, guys, I found it. I found what we've been looking for. And he says, at first they laughed. He says, then they got mad. Then they voted me out of the fraternity. Some go home excited to tell their parents about their new faith when they come to Christ in our church, thinking their parents are going to be glad that they found this direction and this compass, but they get shot down. Probably the worst of all for Paul was that most of this came from his fellow religious Jews. They were supposed to understand. It was all so clear in his mind. Why couldn't they see? He explained it to them in very clear ways, but they wouldn't get it. The worst names that I've ever been called have come from other so-called religious people. It was the religious studies department at our university that led in the opposition to what was happening on our campus. Even the church, think about this, even the church didn't have Paul's back. I mean, the church, the one that went through Pentecost, the one led by Peter and James. Verse 26 says they were all afraid of him because they didn't really even believe that he was a disciple. They thought he was a fake. Can I ask you a question? Are you ready for this? Are you ready to be criticized, belittled, to have your motives constantly impugned, to feel at times like you're all alone? And when that happens, are you going to keep on preaching? Notice in the next few verses how often the word boldly is used. At Damascus, Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed. The implication is boldly against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Here's a question for you. What if Paul had not continued to preach boldly? What if their opposition had shut him down? Humanly speaking, you and I would not be sitting here today. There are people whose salvation, humanly speaking, depends on how you respond to this opposition. I read about a woman a few months ago who was actually right here in the triangle who got out of her car and her three kids were in the car and it was on a slight incline and she evidently the car was out of gear, the emergency brake, whatnot, and she noticed it started to roll backwards and it was about to roll into traffic. And so she literally threw her body underneath the front two tires to try to stop the car from rolling. It cracked three of her ribs, put her in the hospital. Any parent understands that because there are some things that are so important that they're worth extreme actions. Maybe that's the test that God is working in you. He wants you to to think or he wants to see how valuable the gospel is to you. How much do you actually believe this? You see, we need a generation of preachers who value the gospel more than life itself. And so I pray, part of my prayer for you this morning is that opposition that you encounter will make you go deeper. It'll force you to learn like Paul learned to dispute with effectiveness because we got a culture that needs people who can speak with grace and truth and who don't need constant applause and are willing to tell the truth and keep going when people oppose them. Number two, Paul was chosen. Paul was chosen, yet God took nearly two decades to prepare him. There's something you don't see immediately in this 
passage, but there's a lot of time that passes in these verses. In verse 23, it says, after many days had passed, he escaped from Damascus and went to Jerusalem. Many days is three years. How do we know that? Paul tells us himself in Galatians 1 verse 15, right after I was saved, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, there it is, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas Peter and remain with him 15 days. Three years passed before Paul met the first apostle. What did he do during those three years? Well, we assume and we glean from other things, he spent time with Jesus. He brought Jews to Jesus one by one. Then after three years, he got his first introduction to the pastor. Then he disappears again for 14 years. How do we know it was 14 years? Again, Paul explains in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, this time taking Titus along with me. Well, what happened during those 14 years? Again, we're not totally sure, though we get clues in Paul's epistles. We know he had some visions from God and God clarified his calling. God gave him some crucial insights about Jesus, Acts 26, 16. We know he was persecuted a lot. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. During the last half of the book of Acts, Paul's persecution, his beatings are gonna come from the, the Gentiles, not the Jews which means that all these are most likely happened in the first 14 years that he's talking about. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not like got drunk to help him deal with the pain, but, but pelted with baseball sized rocks until people thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Let me ask you, how many times would that have to happen to you before you quit getting back on the boat? Right? <laughs> you, 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 you fly from place to place. If you wreck twice, you're not getting on the third time. Paul said to me three times, I kept getting on the boat on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Never make the mistake of asking Paul, how things going? I mean, what a blog this guy would have had, right? His autobiography would have been called My Worst Life Now. Most of all that happened, by the way, if you got a paper Bible, most of all that happened, look at this, in this little, I don't, you probably can't see it on the screen, but in this little white space right there between verses 22 and 23, that's all I get in that narrative in Acts is that little white space right there. You go to great preaching classes here at Southeastern Seminary and you learn to exegete the fine nuances of Greek verbs. You ever learned how to exegete a white space? It's not nearly as easy, but it's in that white space that God does some of the most crucial things that he's ever going to do in Paul's life. Even after verse 31, Paul really fades out of the spotlight until chapter 13 when he's given his first official assignment. Now there is some question I'll admit as to what happened exactly when, but we know all scholars agree that there were at least 17 years, at least 17 years between the time God called him in Acts 9 to when he is officially commissioned as a missionary in chapter 13. At least 17 years. God took a minimum of 17 years to prepare him. I'm sure he was like, but God, why are things moving so slowly? 
That kind of delayed preparation is so common in scripture, I would almost say it is par for the course. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Then he sent him into the desert to tend sheep for his father-in-law for 40 years. You wanna talk about a life fail? You go work for your father-in-law in the desert, herding sheep. David was anointed by God to be the king of Israel, right? What happens after that scene? I mean, what a scene it was, down on his knees, oil dripping down his face. Oh, I've been anointed, I'm gonna be the king. He'd go off to the palace to try on robes, get his face on the magazine of, you know, Israel's 40 most beautiful people or 40 most influential people under 40. Is that what happened? Nope. You get another white space and he goes back to the pasture where he's gonna shovel sheep dung for the next several years. It was during that white space, by the way, <clears throat> during that pasture time that he learned to fight the lion and the bear, which he would ultimately use to defeat Goliath. It's most likely where he wrote the 23rd Psalm. God told Joseph he was gonna use him to save Israel. And then he sent him off to slavery in prison for two decades. God called Elijah to be the mightiest prophet that Israel had ever seen up to this point. Do you ever notice the first place he sends Elijah is not to the mountaintop of Mount Carmel where he does the whole like, you know, fire from heaven thing. He sends him to the brook Cherith. You know what Cherith means in Hebrew? Cut down. Because God was cutting him down. Moses, 40 years. David, 15 years, give or take. Joseph, 20 years. Paul, 17 years. Are you really complaining about how long God is taking with you? Billy Graham said, if I had to do it over again, I would spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but for life before I ever did my first crusade. Don't waste your white space. Don't waste it because it's where you learn character. It's where God teaches you his faithfulness. It's where you learn patience. I know that it's hard. I hated my white spaces. That white space might be the white space of singleness or joblessness or working in the kitchen of an outback steakhouse. <coughs> One of my favorite seminary stories, Bruce has probably told it to you, Dr. Ashford has probably told it to you, um, but uh, he, he didn't ever tell us true versions of stories. My versions are always the correct ones. Um, when we were in seminary, he and I, after we did our motivational speaker deal, um, my career never really took off. I just stayed in the back of that steak restaurant doing the blue and onions. Bruce started to get invited to different, you know, places and he was um, speaking and, and Bruce is smart, you know that, um, but uh, he was, uh, his classes, let's just say he was not living up to expectations. And so uh, Paige Patterson, the president at the time, pulls Bruce into his office and Bruce, when he walks in, there's on the desk, there is a little kitty pail, like you would put in a sandbox and it's filled up with sand and a little, little plastic shovel sticking out of it. And Dr. Patterson says to Bruce, and for the next week, I want you to carry this little sand pail around everywhere that you go. <clears throat> he says, if you go to class, I want it sitting on the desk beside you. If you sleep at night, when you sleep at night, I want it on the, the, beside your bed. He said, wherever you go, if you play basketball, I want it sitting there on the court, you know, right off the, the side of the court. Everywhere you go, I want that sand pail with you. Obvious question is, why? And he says, here's why. Because every time somebody asks you what that sand pail is for, I want you to tell them, that God sent Moses into the desert for 40 years, David into the pasture for a decade. He sent Paul into the desert for three to 17 years. And if the desert is not too good for Moses and Paul and David, it's not too good for you either. 
God put you in seminary at this time for you to understand theology and to learn how to preach with accuracy, and you need to quit saving the world, and you need to not waste this moment that God has put into your life right now. Don't waste your white space. I taught this to a bunch of our college students. One of them was so like moved by, you know, thinking about what God was doing. She went out and got a tattoo, two little lines right here that look like, uh, that represented the white space in her life. It looked like an equal mark, like she was suddenly an advocate for gay marriage. Her, her parents were like, she told me, she said, they, they took me to dinner and they said, are you a lesbian? You know, have you become a lesbian now? She said, no, it's just the white space. I wouldn't say you get tattooed, but I would say that you don't forget that this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing. By the way, I'll just throw this in. We've developed a program at the Summit Church for this. We call it our Pastoral Apprentice Program in which we intentionally invest in a number of aspiring pastors and church leaders during their white space of seminary, many of whom are Southeastern students. Um, directly following chapel. We'll be doing some training with those apprentices in room 223 of Patterson Hall. Uh, we'd love for any of you to join us. It's open um, just to check things out. But the bigger point there is, is don't waste your white space. Number three, Paul was chosen, yet he suffered. If you had to choose one word to characterize those first 17 verses, it would be suffering. That's what God had said. He's a chosen instrument of mine, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering is one of God's primary training tools for his people. Suffering doesn't mean something is wrong, hardly. It means that he's preparing you. The word instrument that God used, he is a chosen instrument of mine, literally means vessel. It's the same word Paul uses, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay, vessels of clay, to show what the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, a vessel has no power or worth of its own. It's simply a conduit for power or a container that holds something else. The vessel becomes powerful not because of what it is, but because of what it contains. You see, up until his conversion, Paul had seen himself as a capable tool for God. God wanted Paul to become a vessel of his, God's power. So Saul, the mighty, needed to become Paul, the small. By the way, that's what Paul literally means in Greek. It means small. So God took time to humble him. You know, they say that there's a, there was an ancient tribe in Japan that um, was world-renowned, at least in the known world at the time, for the way it made its pottery. Lots of, you know, people made pottery, but this tribe in Japan, what they would do is they had one final step that nobody else did, and they would take this pot and they would hold it above a rock and they would shatter it into a hundred pieces on the ground. And then they would pick up the broken shards of that, of that pot and they would take melted gold and they would piece back together this pot so that the gold was now holding the shards together so that the value of the pot after it had been broken and restored was infinitely greater than the pot before it had ever been broken. What Paul said is this is what God has done to me is he couldn't use that unbroken vessel that I was. He had to break me so that he could put into these broken places in my life. He could put the gold of his power and his grace. Before you are broken, you can't be filled with Jesus. Saul the Pharisee can't help me. He just makes me feel bad all the time. But the Paul that walked through pain and failure, the Paul that said, I feel like the chief of sinners, the Paul that said we are persecuted but never forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, that's a guy who can help me. <laughs> there are some parts of Jesus that you're only going to see in the valley of pain. That's why A.W. Tozer said it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. 
Or maybe write this down. If dependence is the objective, that's the objective in your ministry, right? If dependence is the objective, then weakness becomes your advantage. If the gospel is all about teaching people to depend on God, and that's what it is, right? You can't save yourself. God's got to save you. Then weakness in your life is your advantage because weakness teaches you how to depend on God. And suffering helps you get in touch with your weakness. Suffering is also where God purifies your heart, strips you of your idols. I think of Abraham. Abraham left everything to follow God, right? God told Abraham that if he followed him, he'd make him a great nation and bless the world through him. Problem was that Abraham at the time was childless. He was weak. He and his Sarah, his wife, had always wanted children, but he was about 90 years old and she was 80. And they had understandably given up by that point. Right? I mean, at that age, not even the blue pill is going to offer any hope. But God keeps his promise and gives him a son in his old age. The son, Isaac, was the most precious thing to Abraham. It was his greatest earthly treasure. It was also the locus of all his hopes for the future. At 90, he ain't having no more kids. This is it. Genesis 22, the angel appears to him and says, God wants you to sacrifice your son. No explanation. Imagine being Abraham. What have I done wrong? God, why are you punishing me? To all of this, God gives no answer. No answer. Abraham obeyed. Angel stops him. Now I know that you love me. Now I know that you prioritize and depend on nothing more than you prioritize and depend on me. What if that is what God is doing in your life? What if he's just testing you to see what you love and trust the most? Sometimes I think we do wrong when we try to find a silver lining in everything. Well, I didn't get the job at that church, but that's because God wanted me to get a bigger church where I could make more money. Some things God simply does to prepare your heart more for himself. See, in verse 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine. God called Saul, Paul, first to himself and only secondarily to ministry. He wants your heart to belong fully to him, to love him, to trust him. You see, that means that what God is doing in you during this time is just as significant, if not more so, than what he's doing through you. Because see, we glorify God not just by what we do for him, but by who we become in him. He's preparing some of you right now through your singleness, in your pain, in your disappointment, in your obscurity. So stop fighting God on it. I know it's painful. Tim Keller says the the most painful times of our lives are usually when God is digging out of our soul some cherished idol. And by the way, sometimes it's not about you at all. I mean, think of Job, right? Job never read Job 1 and 2. He didn't know what was going on in his, he didn't know this was a cosmic theater that God was doing to glorify himself before the angels. His suffering was about God, not about him. Why would we think that Job is the only person in history that that happens to? You see, let me tell you another big mistake I think we make. We demand to always understand, don't we? God, listen, if you're willing to explain, I'm willing to go through it. It's like a contract. God, I'll suffer anything, but you got to tell me in advance why it's happening. He may not. Sometimes you just got to trust him. Reminds me of that story of the little bird flying south for the winter. He gets a late start, so he gets caught in a snowstorm. Storm is so bad that ice forms on his wings and he crash lands out of the sky. He's laying there on the ground thinking, this is terrible. I'm going to freeze to death. I can't fly. It's awful. All of a sudden, a cow comes along and drops manure on him. And he thinks, this just went from bad to worse. I'm going to freeze to death. I can't fly. And now some cow just (laughs) dropped manure on my head. 
Well, the manure thaws his wings. He starts he's like, wow, I, I can fly again. He gets so excited that he starts to chirp and sing, but this attracts a cat who comes along and eats him. You can learn three lessons about your life from that story. Lesson number one is not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Lesson number two is not everyone who digs you out is your friend. Lesson number three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your little chirper shut and just wait it out in faith. Paul was chosen, yet he was opposed. He was chosen, yet God took many years to prepare him. He was chosen, yet he suffered. You are chosen. So you will be opposed, you will be delayed, and you will suffer. Let me end this by reflecting for just a few moments. I know our time is fleeting here, but let's just reflect on that word for our last few moments, the word chosen. Because see, it's the key to everything else. The concept of being chosen by God is hard to understand, and I know it raises a lot of really difficult questions. It's easy to look at Paul's life and see that Jesus chose him, right? I mean, you know, go in one direction to kill Christians, God knocks him off his horse, says, you're mine. Paul wasn't looking for God. It's easy to see it there, but your conversion, Paul says, may not have been that dramatic, but the same patterns were at work. If your heart belongs to Jesus, it's because he chose you. Now, again, I know that raises some really difficult questions. Well, if God chose me, do I not have free will? Why didn't God choose everybody? And I'm not going to unpack all those things here. In fact, I'm not even sure I'm smart enough to unpack all those things. So let's just kind of get beyond all the, you know, the theological nuances and the quibbling, and let's just get to why God tells us these kinds of things, because regardless of how you dot the I and cross the T in this question, what I've learned is that the sweetest doctrine in all my life and what appears to be the sweetest doctrine in Paul's life is knowing that God chose him. You say, well, how do you know, J.D., that you're chosen? <laughs> well, because I believe in, love in Je- believe in and love Jesus. And Scripture says there's no way that you can do that apart from the Holy Spirit. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's God who works in you, Philippians 2.13, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Those of us who are born again are not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but we're born of God. That means that I'm not here because there was some good in me and I sought God. God didn't look down and say, well, I know there's some good in that one. That's a theme on a Star Wars. That's not the gospel. God didn't see there was good in me or or, or life. When Jesus raised people from the dead, he didn't go around Jerusalem saying, well, there's some life in that one. I can can bring that back out. There's only one class of dead. Dead. No such thing as nearly dead, Princess Bride, for you children of the 80s. That, That doesn't exist. There was no good in me, no life in me. I was just like Paul. I was against God's rule in my life when he pursued me. And here's why that's comforting to me. If I didn't begin to follow God because of my goodness, then God's not depending on my goodness to keep me following him. You see, if it was a good moment in which I found God, what's going to happen to me in my bad moments? And one thing I've learned over and over, this is what God's taught me in the white spaces of my life, is that my flesh is evil. I'm convinced that in my flesh is nothing good. And if God took his mercy from me away, even for a second, I would turn away. But I have this assurance that what he's begun in me, he surely will finish, Philippians 1, 6. Charles Spurgeon, I have no questions that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love so I feel like I am forced to accept that doctrine. I had a pastor friend who went through a moral failure. It was terrible. He said to me recently, he said, you got to let the doctrine of election become sweet to you. 
because it's what will pick you up out of the times where you fail. I don't know all the answers to the question about the doctrine of how God chooses people, but what I do know this is this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't find myself, I was found. I was blind, I couldn't give myself sight. He made me see. That God chose Paul also shows me that he is fully in charge of this world evangelization process. He's not sitting in his heavens right now, wringing his hands thinking, whoa, that whole every tribe and tongue and nation thing might've been a little bit premature. Maybe it's unrealistic. I mean, how do you even count the different tribes and tongues? They're always fading into one another and one changes. I don't even know how to do that. And I didn't factor in Putin and I forgot the fundamentalist Muslims and who saw the gay agenda coming or the popularity of Ellen DeGeneres. Maybe I was a little overly optimistic in all this. I remember when I served um, as a Southeastern student over in Southeast Asia among Muslims after being there for a year, I'd seen, I'd say half of a person come to Christ. The reason it's half is I wasn't really sure about her. And um, I was just so discouraged. And I met with a missions professor here and I was just like, I feel like, why am I there? It's hard for me to even get up and go through it because nobody's listening to me. He said, well, when that happens, he says, you stay up that night and you look out, you look at those vast expanse of stars and you look up there and realize that these are the exact same stars that God pointed to when he promised to Abraham that one day he'd have children from the people group that you're working among. And you get up, not because you think that their hearts are changing. You get up, not because you've suddenly mastered how to share the gospel with Muslims. You get up because God said it was going to happen and God's going to make it happen. And surely as there are stars in the sky, he's going to do it even when you feel like Abraham spiritually sterile. Where do you get boldness to keep on preaching? You get it from the God who appointed you for a purpose. When he chose you, he had other people in mind. And he is going to see that through. Sometimes this is all Paul held on to. You see, Paul didn't just start his ministry in opposition and suffering. His whole life was characterized by it. He spent his best years in obscurity in prison. He never made any money. When he died, half the church thought he was awesome. But a lot of people were slandering him, saying he was an egotistical maniac. He was executed by Nero and his body was discarded. We have no grave for the apostle Paul. Scholars say his body was most likely eaten by dogs. Now, of course, we see that God was behind it all and that Paul was having a bigger impact on the world than any other human being that had ever lived. But Paul couldn't see that then. Yet here we sit 2,000 years later. Nero's empire has crumbled. We're reading and we're reading the books of Paul. We name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. And by the way, if your name is Nero here, I sincerely apologize um, for that. But from our perspective now, we see that Paul won. But from Paul's perspective then, even at the end of his life, it seemed like he was losing. From your perspective now, does it seem like you're losing? Don't you think God will be faithful to you like he was to Paul? You are a chosen instrument. God's purposes for you are unstoppable. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor principality or power nor anything can separate me from the love of God and the plan for his life, his plan for my life. So when I'm oppressed, I'll respond with boldness. And when he delays taking many days to accomplish what I thought he would accomplish overnight, I'll respond with faith. And when I suffer, I'll respond with resurrection hope because we're afflicted in every way. We're not crushed though. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed. Always carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see, when Paul says death is at work in us, 
He means because it's going to bring life in you, for as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, yea, though in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'm struck down but not destroyed. I'm persecuted but not forsaken. And I know that, who, I know that him whom I have believed in, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And so this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Why don't you bow your heads? Let me just ask you this morning, do you feel persecuted? You're not forsaken. You struck down, you struck down. Bad grade, you got fired, you just really blew it with a ministry opportunity, you're not destroyed. You hopeless, you feel hopeless, don't look within for hope, don't look to your friends, don't go back to what your daddy said about you, don't look to your past, your present, or your future, look to Jesus. Can you hear him say, even as I say to you right now, just let it, hear it through my voice, but him speaking, you are chosen. You're my vessel that I've appointed. And what I've started, I'll finish. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us gospel hope, not hope that comes from silly self-confidence. In fact, destroy that in these brothers and sisters here. Give us hope that comes from, though there is death at work in us, there is life that is working through us for the benefit of the salvation of the world, that what you've started, you will finish, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.